Hi, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinnell. And we are very excited to have Dr. Andrew Willannon with us today. Dr. Willannon has been providing sports psychology services to athletes from the club to the pro level for over a decade. He has published research in the areas of sport performance and mental health issues for athletes and uses research to inform his work. He provides cognitive behavioral and mindfulness-based interventions for athletes and focuses on mental skills and emotion regulation during performances, pre-performance as well as post-performance. He also provides consultation to coaches and teams regarding management issues, team performance, and organizational effectiveness. Dr. Willannon additionally provides individual interventions for anxiety and depression. He implements cognitive behavioral interventions that include mindfulness and acceptance-based techniques to aid individuals in positive life changes. Thank you so much again, Andrew, for joining us. We're, we're really excited to talk with you. And yeah. we've known you for a little while now and been aware of your work for, for quite some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something we talk about on the podcast often is how collaborative the mindfulness and sport world really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had the good fortune because of your involvement with uh, mindfulness acceptance commitment approach um, to do some presentations with you in the past and, and collaborate. And so we're Super excited to get to talk to you today and share some of your work with our listeners. So as always, we, we do want to begin with just a, a brief practice, a brief meditation, um, and I'm going to lead it for today. Um, and, and as usual, if you're not in a place where you can give your full attention to the practice, it's okay just for now to listen um, and maybe come back and do this at a different time when it, you could give it your full attention or certainly when it would be safer if you're driving or something like that. Um, And we're just going to do a brief practice today around mindfulness of the breath, the body, and sound. Um, So just a short version of one of the exercises that we do in MSPE. Um, So I'd invite you to begin uh, just by getting settled into a chair, or if you want to lie down, if you're in a place you can do that, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, And maybe just take a moment and get anchored and feel your feet on the ground. And just check in with your breathing. Take a moment and feel the air coming in through your nose, coming down into your torso, and then coming back out through your your mouth or your nose just settling into this moment. And if you want to, you can soften your gaze or close your eyes and just allow yourself to settle into the rhythm of your breathing. Just allowing your mind to be present with this moment. There's nowhere else you have to be nothing else you have to do. Just allowing your full awareness to be with your breath. That gentle inhale and exhale. And however you're breathing, that's perfectly okay. 
And if you'd like to, you could certainly invite yourself to relax your abdominal muscles and breathe from your belly. But however you're breathing is just fine. Maybe now allow your awareness to expand out into the rest of your body, leaving just this single anchor point of our breath and moving now into our feet and just noticing what your feet may be making contact with. Perhaps you can feel socks, perhaps you can feel shoes, perhaps you can feel the floor on your feet or the air on your toes if you're barefoot. And just gently moving your attention up through your body into your legs, up into your knees, the upper part of your legs, and into your pelvic region. Just noticing whatever sensations, whatever experiences you find there, not needing them to be any different than they are. And maybe pausing and again, just focusing on your breath for a moment since we're here. And then moving your attention up into your chest and out into your arms, down into your hands, up into your back, your neck, and your head, and just taking a moment and checking in with your thoughts. What are you thinking? Where is your attention right now? And maybe just allowing your attention to expand out to your body as a whole, just feeling the full hum of all of your life, all of your organs, all of your muscles, all of your bones working together. And now maybe expand your awareness out yet just a little bit further into your environment. And just notice any sounds that you can detect. And if you can't hear anything, if it's silent, that's okay too. See if you can tune into the silence. Just being with your environment hearing those sounds, noticing any reactions that come up, maybe a, a tendency to label a sound as pleasant or unpleasant, good or bad, right or wrong, and just notice it for what it is. Just see if you can be present with and accepting of whatever sounds you're hearing. It can be something subtle like the ticking of a clock or the hum of a heater or an air conditioner or maybe traffic going by outside, or even just the sound of your own body, a small movement. So we've expanded our awareness out from the breath into the whole body and now out into the environment. And let's just wrap up this exercise by bringing our attention back into the body 
and then back into the breath and just taking a couple more breaths. Just being present with the impact of having done this. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and rejoin the world around you. Thanks, Keith. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're recording this in the morning. It's always good to, to start a day with a, with a practice like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really sets a tone, you know, and some of the, some of the language that you had used is about like tuning into some of the sounds and being aware of the um, just reactions to them. I was doing a similar meditation with a team last week. Um, and I remember one of the, one of the young women in talking about her experience of doing the meditation, tuning into some sound, she talked about how distracted she was by hearing birds chirping outside. Mm -hmm. um, and I hear birds chirping outside my window right now. Um, but we talked about this uh, in the meeting because someone else like had just had a very different association to birds chirping. It wasn't a distraction. It was very pleasant. Right. And it's like, wow, how quickly those associations come in to create an emotional valence because for me, I really enjoy the sounds of bird chirping, not just because it's, I think it's like a relaxing sound, but it also like, my son really likes it. So it's become a thing where he wakes up in the morning and he wants to go to the window and there's this like bird's nest. It's in our neighbor's roof, which he should probably like maybe take care of. But like for us- it, <laughs> If you're listening neighbor, clean your gutters. <laughs> for us, it's very pleasant. You really, so it's like all that comes up as soon as I hear the birds chirping, right? And it really, yeah, it really changes how I'm feeling in the moment doing that meditation. Well, I mentioned we do this in, in MSPE and we do it sort of toward the middle of the training because I think it does introduce some of these environmental sort of chaotic factors, right? Where there are direct applications to sport performance, um, where we're going to be sensing things in our bodies, sensing things in the environment that we may or may not like. Mm -hmm. and, and just being able to be present with those things, notice those things without becoming overly reactive to them. Um, that's, I, I think this is a really useful practice, even though, yes, we're sitting or lying down. It's a, it's a sedentary kind of practice. There are direct applications to sport, I think. Yeah, definitely. And just as a funny aside, like talking about like the power of association, Andrew, it's like sitting here with you today. I can't, the, for so long, I had a printed hard copy of your dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I can see the font like your name and the school crest or just like I looked at like that page so you know so like even before I met you like that's who you were in my mind like oh I have this like big stack of paper with your name yes. on it and so now you're like this full person but even even sitting here with you today they're like that's what comes up in my mind like the image of the front page of your dissertation yeah yeah it's amazing how how many associations we as like human beings make through things it, like that are just natural things in our life in some way. Mm. And everybody has different interpretations and different things embedded and kind of these different chains of thoughts that, that occur that we don't really notice until we, we engage in some mindful uh, kind of awareness of, of what our, what our mind's actually doing and, and, and judging things. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that point. That's like, we're doing it. Like we're doing it all the time. Yeah. We just don't notice it. Right, and so like applying applying the mindful awareness, it really is just opening our eyes, not even like creating something new, just becoming aware of this thing that we're already doing. And I think right once we become aware of it, we have a little bit more agency, we have a little more choice in terms of where we attend or where you know 
Well, I know. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, going to say I'm really thankful to be be here with with you guys and having a chance to kind of talk about some of the differences in approaches. Um, I know we we pre presented before and and have such a similar way of doing things, um, but I also think it's really interesting. Some of the the sort of nuanced differences and and perspectives um, are are really kind of cool and fascinating. So looking looking forward to kind of discussing uh, some of that stuff today. Yeah. Well, and actually that's, that's such a great segue into what, what I wanted to ask you first is just to kind of talk about some of the work that you've done. And um, it, obviously I read your bio, you have such a rich and interesting career. Um, and as Tim mentioned, we, we are very aware of the work you did way back when you were a graduate student and it was, it was very uh, impactful. We've cited you many times in the work that we've done. Um, so I don't know if you want to go that far back and talk about some of the work that you did back then and all the way up to what you're doing now, but we'd love to hear just more about your, your approach to mindfulness, your approach to, to mm -hmm. sports psychology. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll start way back when with, with, uh, <laughs> dissertation was, I, I think one of the, the sort of first attempts to, to study the effect of, uh, mindful interventions and an act-based intervention um, with athletes. Uh -huh. um, and originally we, we really wanted to do it strictly for performance and said, we're going to see if we can actually measure athletes performing better on the field or the court or, or whatever the sport was um, uh, through a, a structured intervention. And back at that time, it was when uh, randomized control trials were, were pretty big, um, trying to really look at control group versus uh, experimental groups and, and do some different things. Um, and, and so at that time we, we were like, okay, this, this will be sort of a cool, cool way to measure this, that our group's going to, with, with the act of mindfulness, it's going to perform better. The other group's not, not going to perform better. Um, um, one of the other things we did though, was we also did take a look at um, sort of our, our sense of how psychologically healthy the athletes were that were in, in that study group. Um, so looking at things like subclinical GAD or subclinical depressive symptoms or full on um, athletes that might be diagnosed with, with some psychological concern. Um, so we also coded them as part of that study, uh, which ended up being uh, pretty important because what we found was there really wasn't any difference between the two groups um, in the intervention between control and the experimental group. But we found that um, the psychologically healthy athletes um, who got the ACT intervention actually performed quite better uh, and, and did well. Um, but the subclinical uh, seemed to really have a difficult time uh, actually getting the same amount of effect from the intervention. Um, so that finding is really one of the things that shaped my career moving forward uh, through applied work with athletes was uh, kind of thinking about a, a, a team of athletes. If we had, um, you know, 20 athletes on, on a team um, and we're trying to do the uh, uh, Mac or uh, any kind of intervention, there's going to be a portion of the team that, that's probably going to respond well to it but probably a bigger portion of the team is not going to be able to engage effectively with, with that intervention uh, as, much as, as much as we would like. Um, and over time, so I've started shifting a little bit and, and doing other studies looking at, at prevalence of mental health issues in athletes, looking at response to injury, looking essentially at other sort of things that are really getting in the way of performance rather than having an additive experience for the athlete. We're trying to make sure that we can have the person healthy enough uh, to be able to respond to, to the interventions effectively to then hopefully perform well on the field. Um, but there's kind of a step in the middle that I think that I think I was missing um, 
with my dissertation that we've been trying to kind of think about and correct um, over, over the last last decade or so. Um, so it's been uh, it's and some athletes respond very very well just to, to straightforward things. So it's not not saying that it doesn't work, um, but I but I think I've shifted a little bit more towards the clinical side of things um, from seeing how many athletes are are really struggling with anxiety, significant anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms, um, and some of the studies we've done are kind of showing some of the some of those rates. Um, so so now I'm, I'm uh, just kind of. Uh, I was in academia for geez, 10 years, 12 years, something like that, um, in 2016. Um, started my own business, basically to be closer to my wife and kids and, and not travel as much for work and uh, hopefully work a little bit less. Um, so I started my own business where I provide services for uh, elite high school athletes um, and try not to work with too many high school athletes. Um, really, my focus is college age. Uh, and, and pro athletes across different sports, um, and then serve on uh, sort of different uh, organizational contracts um, for for different uh, like players associations or national team associations, things like that. Um, uh, and then serve with right now I'm with uh, U.S. Lacrosse on the medical advisory board to help try to understand um, kind of policies and, and mental health policies uh, affecting uh, sort of the organization as, as a whole. Um, so a lot of the, the work I've ended up doing is a lot of presentations to physicians and doctors um, and people outside of sports psychology um, because I've realized how much there's kind of a front line of mental health for athletes um, and the sports psychologist is not always the one that, that's able to be there in, in the room when that, that issue is coming up. Um, so working a lot with team doctors, uh, athletic trainers, physical therapists, um, and, and even administrative staff within within a, a department, uh, I think tends to be the, the, the way I'm doing things mostly now. Yeah, I mean, I think that really maps with something we've seen a lot in our work as well, which is that need for integration, right? That you can't be the sports psychologist working <laughs> alone. It's so important to be educating all of these different stakeholders that are working with athletes. And I, I'm so curious in, in your experience, what... Um, what the reception has been, how people have responded when you presented to these different professions. You know, it's, I think it's always a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, there's uh, a portion of a, a room if there's 10 physicians or 10 athletic trainers that are, are very engaged and kind of interested in, and are more willing to entertain sort of that piece of the pie and understanding how an athlete's functioning, how, how they're working. Um, there's some people that aren't aren't that receptive, and and that's okay. I'll keep chipping away. Um, and my stance is really to try to to sort of educate, to be um, sort of not overly pushy with things, um, but then hopefully be able to have somebody in a different discipline see a benefit with one of their clients through the work that I do with with the shared client. Um, and I think that that is always what I'm trying to do to kind of shape their understanding of, of what we do and how we do it and, and why it can actually make a difference. Yeah, well, it's just that, that holistic perspective is so powerful. And it really does, it boggles my mind sometimes, the resistance to it, right? Just the reality that human beings, athletes are human beings too, right? Like they have multiple identities and they have all of these different factors that influence their capacity to show up and perform, right? Like a clinical diagnosis or even something subclinical, right? Like those symptoms will 
will interfere with their ability to, to, to focus, to get along with their teammates, to you know, like, and, and yeah, to, to really start to see the ways that what they're doing with their physician and what they're doing with their PT and what they're doing with their coach and what they're doing with their sports psychologist, like all of that stuff influence each is each other. Like we've got to work as a team. Uh, to really make sure that we're speaking the same language, that they're that we're like reinforcing what what the other professional service providers are doing, and it just I, maybe it's my bias. It just seems so logical. It seems so straightforward, and and that like, yeah, there are still people who are like, nope, I'm just going to stay in my lane and like not really pay attention to what anyone else is doing. Right, and I, th- I think that speaks to the realities sometimes of people's jobs and what life looks like, or whether it's a business approach or. Uh, the structure of a athletic department or a team, for example, can have a very different management structure and how people communicate and how people do things. Uh, and to create that holistic system takes a lot of relationship building, a lot of work and a lot of time without actually seeing the client. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, there's gotta be somebody at the top that really says, we're gonna, we're gonna create this system in a way because we want this. It's very hard for people in the trenches, so to speak, all come together and say okay we're all going to make this happen when their day is back to back with injured athletes for example uh having me come in and be like hey hey, like let's talk holistic what what are we doing mental health wise and and doing all that um there's not as many touch points as as you'd like if you have to self-create it um so one of the things i've really been trying to push is is really more of an organizational approach to it um rather than a provider approach um because i think um, and rightfully so, just the, the nature of people's jobs doesn't allow them the, the mental space to really consider uh, benefits of different approaches. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And it's like, it's certainly a, kind of an approach we've tried to embrace, but yeah, but it's like a hard sell. Yeah. And I think we, we've spent a long time kind of trying to do like the ground up version where it's like, maybe you get in and like work with one team within an athletic department. Right. And that team starts to see some benefits and some other coaches, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm interested. I want to do that too. And eventually you kind of, you attain critical mass where like the administrators start to pay attention and, and like, Oh, maybe we really do want to make some systemic change here. And it, like for us anyway, like that's always where it stalls. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we, we get the one team turns to two turns to three turns to four. Right. The I even got with one university got to the point where we were able to set up, uh, an MSPE training for coaches and some of the administrators, including the athletic director signed up and wanted to take it too. And I was like, Oh my God, we're, we're here. We did it. You know? And then like after the first meeting, the athletic director just like couldn't fit in their schedule anymore. And half the coaches stopped being able to show up because they had their athletes coming in, needed to talk to them about grades or other problems, you know? And it, it's just like, wow, it is so hard to make this kind of systemic change. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's what, what I've, Sort of learned over the years is really is um, sometimes I, I felt like I was spinning my wheels doing that approach of, of sort of engaging a team um, or you know I still work with you know certain team doctors uh, of a sport and that's fine but they'll refer people to me but it's not systemic yeah. so I've really focused on kind of taking a step back and saying I, I think the the work I will do do will be more effective if I sort of patiently try to sell this approach to the higher levels rather than aggressively selling it to the lower levels that gets traction, but it doesn't seem to be sustainable traction um, um, over time. 
Um, so it's, it can be frustrating because there are people that aren't interested right at, at the higher level and, and that's okay. And try to sort of, you know, no pun intended, but be mindful yeah, of right. frustration <laughs> and say, okay, but I think that's, that's the right approach to do things and that's what I'm going to do and not slip back for myself business-wise into uh, sort of a, a more frantic approach to, yeah. to connecting. Well, and I, I don't want to ask you to reveal any trade secrets here. I know you've worked hard to build your business, so feel free to answer this however you want to. But Tim and I, we co-lead these MSPE instructor trainings um, about every quarter. And one of the most common questions we get is, is about this, is how do we make this sell, especially at these, these top levels? Um, and as Tim spoke to, uh, I think a, a lot of our experiences have been more sort of a bottom-up kind of approach. But having learned the lessons that you've learned, I guess if, if you can speak at all to how you make that pitch to these higher levels, how do you make that sale? And, and especially, I mean, it's so interesting going back to what you started with, what you learned from your dissertation and, and the attention that you give to the sort of impact that clinical factors or subclinical factors have. I, I imagine that doesn't make the sale any easier, right? Now you're not just talking about performance, but you're also talking about mental health and how maybe we want to be able to deal with that. So whatever you're able to say, I would love to know how you approach these administrators. I, I think I really stick with um, sort of that foundational uh, concept in mind, which is that I believe that, that the health of the athlete and the mental health of the athlete probably matters more for performance than adding a performance enhancing intervention for them. Yeah. Um, and so the, the way that I try to, to sell things or explain things to an administrator or somebody is really looking at the overall health of an organization and what type of service can we integrate that's going to help as many athletes as possible um, um, sort of see a, a change in performance, right? And so we're not going to have necessarily say, we're just going to focus on the top athletes and get them better. We're going to, as much as we can do that, we're also going to look at the bottom 50% who aren't performing well. And if we have a 10% um, gain or 15% gain in that group as a team, we see significant uh, change in performance for the organization. Um, and so, so one is kind of couching performance in, in a sense of we need your people to be healthy before they're going to perform. And, and a lot of people do get that, I think. And whether it's examples from their own lives or other things is I, I think they, they can definitely understand that. Um, the other piece to it, I think is in this day and age is there is uh, a reduced stigma of mental health issues occurring in athletes. Um, what we've seen from uh, prevalent studies that, that we've done for depression, for example, was almost a quarter of division one athletes were at a clinical level of depression. Um, during their sports medicine physical, right? And so if we have a quarter of your team is depressed, um, they're probably not gonna be playing that well. And you're probably not gonna have that high functioning of, of a team. Um, and so really just saying, if we're, we're gonna be able to do uh, mental health interventions specifically geared towards athletes and the experience that they have, and we're gonna frame it through sport and performance, but we're really just doing uh, a clinical intervention for as many athletes as we can to help the uh, performance of the organization. Yeah, and it does seem like that would be a really logical platform, Thanks. right? But it's like, I, I do think people have such a hard time like 
really emphasizing like the problems that could be avoided right that, that that idea that and one so one of the findings that 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 we found uh in an rct looking at mspe was that um it seemed to buffer against depression in our control group that didn't get mspe over the course of the season or the course of the semester you know they, their scores of depression increased whereas the the group who got the mindfulness training um didn't change in their depression scores, right? So this idea that like, oh, to like come in and do this holistic intervention might actually help like mitigate the stress, right? That would accumulate over the course of the semester that could result in things like anxiety and depression. And of course, if you can mitigate that, then these athletes are gonna perform better, but it's like how to get someone, especially someone who's like not in this world, who doesn't really think about like, these clinical impacts to say like, oh yeah, like even though I don't have that problem right now, it is worth it to me to invest the time and the effort and make the change in order to avoid that problem in the future. Even if it's so clear that it's gonna come, right? Stress is gonna accumulate because these athletes have multiple identities. They have things going on in their lives. Um, but yeah, to, to tune people into this, this kind of thinking, I think is such a challenge. The other example I would give would, would be working with injured athletes Right, so um, um, so either either injured athletes or or um, uh, you know athletes in an organization that have significant mental health issues um, take a huge amount of resources to actually figure out how to help that person and how to manage that person, right? And so if you don't have the structure in place to holistically really deal with everybody with all the different things, and each organization is different with counseling centers or or team doctors or EAP systems or different things, um, that structure can lead administrators to having to spend a ton of time on a couple of different athletes, right? Um, which can be very frustrating for their success in their career and what, what they're trying to do. Um, so trying to sort of see how you, you can help mitigate those things. Um, but with the injured athletes, it's, it's working with an athletic trainer or a team doctor right, is they can see some other athletes don't get better as fast as others, um, or they don't come to rehab, they don't do the things that they're asking them to do, or they just keep making the same complaint about the same thing over and over and over. And they get so frustrated because they aren't trained in, in what's happening or, or how to deal with the mental side of, of the injury. Um, and so really sort of saying like, I'm happy, send that person to me, I'm happy to sort of take that off your plate so that you can focus more on what you're good at. Let me deal with what I'm good at and, and kind of show that example sort of of a collaborative uh, model can actually help more people get better on both, both sides of the, of the professions. Yeah, as I know, Tim said it a couple of times, it just makes so much sense. <laughs> it kind of makes you wonder why it feels like you're paving all these new roads. It's like, yeah. why haven't we thought of this before? You know, we're all trying to help people. <laughs> <laughs> we may have different foci yeah. and, and different ways of doing it, but we're all on the same team. And, and so it sounds really important. It sounds very intuitive, but it sounds very, very important what you're doing and providing this education to other providers and professions and, and trying to promote this kind of holistic approach to treatment. Um, I, I'm curious too. And again, I, I don't mean to step on any trade secrets. So answer this however you want to, but how, how much mindfulness you do, like what, what kinds of, of when you talk about, you know, the work itself, I know from your bio very generally, you mentioned, you know, cognitive behavioral work and mindfulness-based work, but are you still pretty involved in mindfulness acceptance commitment kind of work or, or what, what kinds of interventions do you find yourself using in these situations? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm still 
um, using a, a Mac framework. Um, and so the way that, that I do things is really thinking through foundationally from cognitive behavioral framework. So thought, emotion, behavior, physiology, connections, right? And then think about it from an act perspective, which is we're not trying to change thoughts into positive or negative thoughts. We're trying to change the relationship between those variables um, to affect behavior in, in a positive way. Um, and so then the, the MAC approach is certainly implemented with um, uh, high functioning athletes, right? When we kind of have stuff out of the way. Um, and so the approach I use is trying to figure out how those variables are working for the particular athlete, how to get them to the point where they can actually start really um, uh, being able to focus on sort of valued behavior and that's usually performance, right? Um, to be able to focus on that without the, the thoughts and the emotions um, or a physiological response getting in, in the way of that, um, that, that doesn't need to. Um, and so through that, that approach, I use uh, a fair amount of, of, of mindfulness, um, but I really use it as a diffusion technique. Um, so I don't do mindfulness as you guys do, where we're going to start a session with a four minute mindfulness um, because I don't think that that mimics what their experience is in life or, or on the field. Um, and so my mentality is really almost as like a behavioral training is we want to be able to have as many brief moments of mindfulness as possible to notice how our mind can shift back and forth um, to kind of grease the wheels to get into periods of flow state when, when they can um, and not feel like they have to uh, sort of do a big intervention to get, to get back in it or if they get stuck in some way. Um, and so I, I'll do a lot more. Um, sort of experiential exercises in, in session, um, kind of noticing sensations, noticing thoughts, um, but it's usually five seconds, 10 seconds, and then doing repetition of that um, over the course of, of the session in different ways, depending on, on where the, the triggers are and, and the particular cues are uh, uh, for, for an athlete. Um, and then I, I actually do a ton of exposure. Um, so I do a lot of thought exposure. So if you have a a thought that you're afraid of or you don't like, uh, I'm gonna fail. We will talk about that word over and over and over and over <laughs> and repeat it and get to the point um, of, of habituation. So, so I really think of it as a classic exposure exercise, but a lot of times do it with the language and the way that the person's talking to themselves. Um, and mindfulness helps access that, that thought process as to what those thoughts are that we need to, to expose to. Yeah. I love that as a kind of a concrete example. And yeah, I was wondering if you could share other, some of these like really brief, you know, like you said five to 10 seconds, like what, what would you have an athlete do to, to highlight this point that you're making? Mm -hmm. um, uh, differences. Uh, so one would just be a very brief uh, mindfulness of breath, mm -hmm. right? So uh, in, instead of really engaging the breath and trying to, to engage that mindfulness is we're trying to, uh, stop the chain of thoughts that might be occurring from a play on the field. So I made an, uh, an error on the field. I didn't trap the ball effectively, went out of bounds. I have the thought, oh no, I'm gonna terrible. My coach is gonna pull me out. Um, I'm never gonna play again. These thoughts start spiraling in, right? right? So in order to break that chain of thoughts, we wanna to go to something physical and something present, which for an athlete on the field very easily is, is the breath or something tangible or something physical that, that they can feel that is a very, very brief mindful uh, sort of touch point 
to, to be able to um, not engage the thoughts, right? Is we don't want to say, I can't think that, um, or I can't have that thought um, rather than I notice that I'm doing this and go into, into something present. Um, and so it can be a lot of times something physical, depends on the sport, depends on the athlete um, as to sort of what, what that right. touch point would be. Um, but, you know, if you watch a baseball player, um, you know, taking their gloves on and off um, prior to an at bat, right? That's a very nice example of something that they're not necessarily doing on purpose, but it's really a mindfulness exercise that they've trained themselves to do in between pitches. Um, and so kind of figure out how do we replicate that uniquely for, e for each person. Yeah. Whenever someone brings up that kind of example, I always think of Nomar. He just, it was yeah. so complicated, all that glove stuff. <laughs> that was a little OCD. <laughs> <you know. laughs> but it, it oh, well, oh, just to what you were saying kind of in the very beginning, Andrew, about like, the nuanced kind of differences between the different mindfulness approaches, you know, I think we're, which we're starting to talk about, which I was really hoping we'd get into. Um, and so I don't know if you talk about it or frame it this way when you're working with athletes, but kind of the point you're highlighting feels very similar to what we really emphasize in MSPE around choice, mm -hmm. right? That as we become more mindfully aware of what's happening, right? Our physical sensations, our thoughts, our emotions, that we can choose where our attention goes. And normally those anxious thoughts like pull our attention, right? And that's why we kind of go into that spiral. But when you can notice something present here and now, right? Particularly something that's relevant to your performance, like tension in your shoulders, right? That like if you can release some of that tension, you'll be looser, probably perform better. Like that when you can notice all of these different variables, notice what's pulling your attention and make the choice to come back to the present moment, particularly to a performance relevant variable, right? Suddenly, right, you've alleviated a lot of that anxiety, you're back absorbed in the moment, moment ready to perform. But, uh, but I guess my question to you is like, do you frame it as that? Like, this is about choices, it's about agency. It, so it, it's about choices. I think one of the other, other nuances is, um, um, I, this sounds kind of funny, but I'm, I'm not trying to help the athletes be less anxious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I think some uh, of sort of longer meditations or longer mindfulness um, types of interventions uh, get kind of taken as this is how I'm going to I'm going to use this to relax myself mm -hmm. so that when I feel anxious, I'm, I have a tool that now I can implement before the game that I'm going to get that anxiety to go away. Right. Um, and the approach I take is, is different is that we're, we're not going to try to do anything with the anxiety we're gonna to try to experience it more fully, right? Because the more that we experience it, the, the less that um, we have to actually pay attention to it. Um, so a lot of it is really exposing the person to these different things. So you don't have to be scared of what happens um, or a sensation and you can actually go and do what, do what you do. Yeah, and it's so funny to hear you talk about it that way because like we kind of have built into our program that exact trap or mistake or whatever, right? That, that when you teach an athlete mindfulness, I mean, they're coming from the environment they come from. I mean, they were, they were taught to be, to, to like operate from this kind of fear-based perspective about wanting to avoid mistakes and wanting to be perfect or whatever that means. And it comes with all this pressure and anxiety. And so when you give them a kind of a new approach like mindfulness, their first reaction is to fit it in the box they know. And so, yes, they're like, oh, this is great. It's gonna make my anxiety go away. And I love the moment when they come in and they're like, 
it stopped working. I'm like, what do you mean stop working? I'm like, well, I did the meditation and I didn't get less anxious. And it's like, yes, yeah. right? Because we're not trying to make your anxiety go away. This doesn't work like all the other stuff you try to use. And so it's actually kind of creating that experience that gives us something to talk about, like non-striving, right? This idea that we're actually not trying to make change or not trying to make this anxiety go away. That actually creates more pressure and tension. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so it's funny when you're like, yeah, I kind of want to like step around that. And we're like, oh, we want to like step right into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, and like, I'll, so I'll do other things like um, I had a, a runner that was having a, a negative thought about failing or something bad happening. Right. And we identify what that thought is, is have them actually think that while they're training, while they're running mm. uh, as much as possible. So purposely allowing themselves to have that thought yeah. and then, tracking what their performance is with the training. And then we have a behavioral example paired back to the thought to show them like this emotional state or this uh, cognitive state don't actually relate to, to your performance. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, it, and until an athlete can really see that, they're stuck in that kind of fear-based uh, mentality that you were mentioning, Tim, with like, this is, they're trying to make it go away to yeah. be in some state that they think is the right place they need to be. Um, but never actually happens for anybody. Um, <laughs> so, so it, it's a uh, little different. Yeah. And something that this is, this may be a, a bit of an aside, but I have to admit this is coming up it, it, for me. I, I know I mentioned earlier, one, one of the common questions we get in our instructor trainings, um, you know, about how do we make this sale? Another common question that we get is what do we think about sort of the relationship between mindfulness and cognitive behavioral approaches. Yeah. And, and it seems pretty notable that, that in, in your descriptions, Andrew, you're, you're using some cognitive behavioral terminology, integrating it with, with mindfulness, yeah. um, which I think is great. I, I, I certainly am on the side of, I, I think there are definitely ways that these things pull together. They're, they're different in some ways, but, but I think I like the way you're using some of the language you are. Um, I have to ask, because this is, this is sitting out to me. I remember being at a conference a couple of years ago and one of your mentors, Frank Gardner, was asked that question. Could, they, could there be some overlap between cognitive behavioral approaches and mindfulness? And he very strongly said no, that, that he didn't believe there was any overlap. And so knowing how he feels about that and, and, and you coming from the MAC approach, I'm curious like how this evolved for you. And, and is that something that's intentional and conscious that you use some of the CBT language and, and how you treat my, or, um, teach mindfulness, excuse me? So, well, well, I think the distinction I'll make is, is the CBT framework um, is the same for ACT, right? So ACT is actually a cognitive behavioral intervention, right? Your framework of thought, emotion, behavior, physiology is, is the same. So the approach, uh, the traditional approach of CBT was we're going to change your thought to that there's certain thoughts that are more effective compared to other thoughts. We change your thinking, we're going to change your emotion, which will then change your behavior. So it was this kind of linear approach, uh, right, to, to doing things. So I would 100% say that is, that is not what I do, right, is that linear traditional cognitive behavioral approach but still see it through that framework. And instead of doing that, we're trying to change the relationship between those variables and how those variables connect with one another. Um, and that's really the ACT approach and the MAC approach is, uh, is, is saying you can, you can think something and do something differently. You can have a heart palpitation and 
um, still behave a certain way. You can start playing around with these variables uh, in back and forth ways and in different ways to focus on valued behavior rather than saying we have to sort out your thinking first uh, to be able to get to that, that behavior change. Yeah, thank you for making that. I think that's really helpful. Um, yeah, because I, I think you seamlessly integrate that language, but to also make that, that distinction, um, that I think that's really helpful to, to explain. Yeah, right. It is just so, it can get so nuanced. Yeah. Right. You know, like, and it's, I guess, a kind of a broader discussion, maybe a different discussion, but, you know, to, to just like do a Google search about mindfulness, you know, or maybe more like a Google Scholar search and all these different research articles come up and, and all these different researchers might mean something slightly different when they're talking about mindfulness or when they're talking about how they approach mindfulness. And it's like, and, and I know like for myself, you know, you can get so deep in one particular perspective. You know, we like are very kind of heavily informed by like John Kabat-Zinn's work and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, and this, and, right. And like the approaches that involve more like formal mindfulness and meditation. And it's like that there are people doing like, really good effective work with these subtle or sometimes not so subtle differences in approaches. And it's like, it's, it's very cool to talk about, very cool to think about. Well, yeah. yeah, like I just see, I see it sort of as a tool in my toolbox, right? But it's not the tool that always works. Um, mm -hmm. So some, some athletes, there's a, a bigger mindfulness component. Um, some have other approaches or, uh, you know, it's trying to really kind of conceptualize what the issue is and how it's working to figure out what, what tool um, has the, the best chance of, of working. Yeah. Which feels like a very mindful way to work, right? Meet the moment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us and, and yeah. making the time and, and walking us through the really cool stuff that you're doing. Um, if, you're, if you're willing to, I, I know obviously you have your business and I, I believe you have a website. Do you want to share with our listeners any ways that they can get more information about you or if they wanted to reach out to your practice, how they might contact you? Um, my website is willannonconsulting.com and email is on there. Contact is on there. Uh, it's andrew at willannonconsulting.com. Um, always happy to chat and collaborate. And are you, I probably should have, have mentioned this, you're in the Philly area still or where, where are you based? Philadelphia and, and uh, New Jersey area mostly, um, and then work with, with uh, some athletes that travel in different places. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. Um, and for any listeners who want to get in touch with us, the MSP Institute, you are welcome to visit our website at www.mindfulsportperformance.org. Um, you can also visit our MSP Facebook page. Uh, we also have some companion sites for our podcast. You're welcome to visit our YouTube page where we do post our meditations that are featured at the beginning of each episode. We also have an Instagram page for our podcast and the handle there is at mindful underscore sport underscore podcast. Um, and you're also welcome to connect with me, Dr. Keith Kaufman on Twitter. My handle is at mindful sport doc. Um, and we also wanna just take a quick moment and thank our producer, Taylor Brown for all of his hard work and our colleague, Dr. Carol Glass for her support of the podcast behind the scenes. Um, so thank you again to Andrew for joining us today. This was wonderful. And thank you to everyone who listened and we will see you next time. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you.